Hello, Andrew Gomison here with the Culture Watch podcast, a podcast of speaking for him. Each and every week, it is my privilege to come to you with the latest and current news and world events from a scriptural perspective. And I hope that you will be encouraged by this podcast and be prepared to have important discussions about the world around us with those you come in contact with. We have a lot to cover today, so I'm just going to jump right in to news for the week of October 1st. Our first story comes from where else? Washington, D.C. So over the weekend... The government did not shut shut down. They voted to extend it for another 45 days. But this is the headline in the New York Post this morning. Does this look like a door handle? Because right. Congressman Bowman, uh, during the middle of that vote, he was trying to get out and wanted to leave out of the emergency door. You probably saw this over the weekend. And he pulled there fire alarms. So Republicans are saying he did that just to shut down the government or make them avoid a vote or so everyone would leave. Right. Because he pulled the fire alarm just as the House Democrats were trying to delay the vote. So they're trying to delay the vote. And he pulls that thing. He was a high school principal. He, he knows, knows the what rules. the fire. No, he knows what a fire alarm looks like. There's one in every school in the world. Yeah, they teach the kids not to pull them. Well, you don't. Well, you know what you do if there's a fire? Uh, you don't pull it to open the door. Does that look like does that look like a thing you pull to open the door? Here's a statement they put out Saturday uh, after he got caught because. Uh, the House Republicans, of course, run the House of Representatives, and uh, the House released the video, uh, the image of him pulling the fire alarm. Uh, he, the congressman, said, today, as I was rushing to make a vote, I came to a door that is usually open for votes, but today would not open. I am embarrassed to admit that I activated the fire alarm, mistakenly thinking it would open the door. I want to be very clear. This was not me in any way trying to delay the vote. But he did delay the vote, and that is not what you pulled to open a door. Come on, Congressman. So, Angela, to your point, uh, you know, what do you teach the children? He used to run a school. He ran the Cornerstone Academy for Social Action. Um, and, and in their code of conduct, they have these rules and consequences. So if you uh, pull the fire alarm when it's not supposed to, there's there's two levels. There's level five and level six. Level five this is at, gets the school. at the school. You get suspended for uh, 10 days. If it's a level six, there's long term suspension and you can get expelled for the entire year oh. from the school. So to your point, uh, he educated our kids for a long time. Uh, shouldn't he play by the same rules? That uh, you know he held. How did you get the handbook from the school? That's very impressive. Oh, nice! The fire department shows up. I mean, that's a huge fine. The question is, there's going to be an investigation by Capitol Police. Are they going to ask for his phone? Did Akeem Jeffries text him and say we need a delay? Pull the pull the fire alarm. Was that his own brainstorm? Congressman Pullman, first of all, with your level of experience in schools, I totally agree. You should know how to operate fire alarms, and how to operate doors. It's very clear from the video that accompanies this story, and I would encourage you, for all of my news stories that I feature today, go back, 
watch the YouTube videos because there is interesting visual stuff at many times that goes along with the stories that a podcast like this can't do justice. But I assure you that this video will show you that the fire alarm was nowhere near the door. So how he can come up with this story to say that he thought he was opening the door when he set off the fire alarm is beyond me. But beside that, consider for a moment this idea that this man has not the ability to open a door on the Capitol when he is supposedly on his way to vote for legislation. This is a very weird story. It is a very weird excuse. And I ask you a simple question. What would happen if the man in question was a Republican? First of all, I can guarantee you that more than simply a few news outlets would be covering it. Second of all, I can guarantee you that it would be considered a travesty. And this reminds me of a story a few years ago when Democrats left the state rather than voting for a particular legislation. Now, here's the bottom line. When we vote for legislation, the only thing we can do is vote yes or no. Delaying a vote does no one any good. If you have a vote and you feel strongly about an issue to vote for it, then you vote for it. If you don't or you feel strongly against it, you vote against it. Those are the options afforded to you. There is no middle ground. But this man clearly has the experience and the know-how to realize that pulling a fire alarm is not a good move. That's first of all. Second of all, to my knowledge, it's not easy to pull a fire alarm because if it were easy, it would be much more common to activate them by mistake. My understanding of fire alarms is that you have to put effort into pulling them. So I don't know about you, but I am not buying this story for one moment and It really is a shame that someone would stoop to this level to avoid voting on a spending bill that would delay a government shutdown. The second thing I want to mention before I go on to the next story is simply this. Government shutdowns never really amount to much in way of significance. And what always is laughable to me is that often government shutdowns include closing down public monuments at government sites and appointing security to make sure that these public monuments that are consistently open to the public with no one particularly guarding them are not accessed by the public. So you end up spending more money on the government shutdown than you would if you left the government open. So I don't pretend to understand all the inertia of this, but I just know that government shutdowns are mainly for political grandstanding 
and they don't really accomplish much. My final word on this topic and related to this story is this. I think that both the Republicans and the Democrats have a problem with spending. The problem is that we have adopted a mentality here in the United States of America that says the government should solve our problems. That is the way most of us approach this issue. And even we as Christians can fall into this trap of thinking, well, this is a problem. What is the government's answer for this? I have been saying for the many years that speaking for him has been in existence, and this year marks 14 years of ministry for us, that one of the biggest problems with the government is that it has become bloated. And why has it become bloated? The reason it's become bloated is largely because the church has laid down its responsibilities to care for those in the community and has instead embraced programs and buildings. And the government says, don't worry, we will pick up the slack, but there is always a price tag for following the government's mandates and expecting them to solve your problems. Just remember, folks, whatever the government gives you, they can take away. My next story has to do with this never-ending battle for the hearts and minds of our children. I'm very pleased to hear that a pastor has gone to bat for our children when it comes to the literature that comes out of the school libraries for which he is very concerned. Pastor John Amanchikiu joins us now. Pastor, thank you very much for being here. They don't want you there, but we love to have you here. How, how Do they understand how absurd it sounds when they sit there in the dais and say, those are inappropriate words, sir, and you're simply saying those words are in the kids' books? Listen, first and foremost, thank you so much for having me on your show. But I'm seeing a constant theme around the country. I went to Asheville, North Carolina, and the same thing happened. A board chairman cut me off because I read from a perverted book that they allow kids to see. I went to Florida, and four sheriffs kicked me out of the school board meeting there. And now I go to North Las Vegas, and the same thing happens. This book right here is recommended reading. It's a book called Flamer by Mike Curato. It's recommended reading for students in Las Vegas. But when you read from that book, when you talk about the things that's in the book, when you show them that it's evil and corrupt to put perverted material before kids, they get angry and the adults, the snowflake adults don't want to hear it in the school board meeting. It's hypocrisy. What's the, how do they defend the material then? Uh, or do they not really know and they just say, well, it's diverse, it's diverse and it's gender affirming. And so it's got to be there. Well, you know, it's it's an agenda. You know, we're dealing with the battle for the American mind. Right. Yeah, yeah you're so, right. <laughs> we, so, you, you know, as well as I know that this is an intentional plan where 
atheist Marxists are pushing an agenda to corrupt the minds of our kids. I call it mental rape. Some people call it indoctrination or grooming, but I like to call it mental rape because it assaults the soul. It stains the brain and it robs children of their innocence. We need to get all of the homosexual sex and the heterosexual sex out of our curriculum standards and our policies and from our libraries. What are we doing? How is sexual acts going to support American students in becoming, you know, rather trained and developed on ACT scores and or SAT test scores? How is that going to benefit us and help us? It's not. But there is a corrupt plan to dissolve the mind and diminish the minds of our kids in America. And I'm not going to sit back and allow it to be done. This pastor has my applause. If I could stand and salute you, sir, I would. He is exactly right. The sexual habits or proclivities or activities of our children or our teachers have no place in our education system. You know, I have talked before on my podcast about how I was cheated out of a quality education by the public education system. Now, I know there may be some people in my audience that have had a good experience with public schools. But as I have said many times before, whether you choose public Christian or homeschooling, it is a parent's primary prerogative to teach and train their children and to be heavily involved in the education process. We are living in a culture today where teachers have convinced parents as a cultural construct that they have no ability to teach their children, that they have no ability to be involved in the educational process, and that they are in fact a deterrent to that process. Way back around COVID time, I did a podcast called Dangerous Parents, and that podcast episode talked about a gentleman who was teaching online Zoom classes because of COVID restrictions, and he was worried about what parents would do if they were listening in to what he was saying. This is something to be very concerned about, and this gentleman is exactly right when these people say that this is an appropriate thing for the school library, but you confront them with it by actually reading portions from the book in a public forum, and they say it's not appropriate for public consumption, something is wrong. And they do have an agenda, and that agenda comes directly from the devil himself. The Bible says in John chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, The thief cometh not, but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. That is the choice that Jesus gives us. Either we will be slaves to the destroyer Satan, or we will be bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ, who delivers us from sin and gives us liberty to stand for him. And it's not liberty to serve ourselves, but rather liberty to serve and love one another. So, Pastor John, I salute you, and I'm so thankful that there are people like you 
fighting for our children. And I want to encourage all the parents that are listening to me right now, please fight for your children. The very future of our country and our world depends on you doing just that. The next story that I want to share with you is that this week, Senator Dianne Feinstein of the state of California died at the age of 90. Fox News alert and sad news. Uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein of California has passed away. The U.S. senator was 90 years old. She was elected as the first female to ever serve as a senator in the state of California back in 1992, nearly 30 years ago. Chad Pergram is live at the Capitol with the latest. Chad, we know she wasn't doing well. What happened? Yeah, we don't know exactly the circumstances here. She had been in ill health for quite some time, uh, but we got some uh, rumblings about this overnight. Senator Feinstein voted yesterday morning in the Senate, but did not attend a Democratic caucus meeting later in the day, and she also did not vote in an afternoon vote series. She was 90 years old. Uh, let me run through some of the history here with Senator Feinstein. You know, she got into politics. She was serving on the San Francisco City Council and became mayor when there was the assassination at the uh, the city hall in San Francisco back in the mid-1970s that killed Harvey Milk, the first openly uh, elected gay official in the United States, and also George Moscone, who was mayor. In fact, she found the body of Mayor Moscone, and then she became mayor and, uh, you know, tinkered with running for governor, was the mayor for many years, and was elected to the United States Senate in 1992 as the year, in the year of the woman. This is where there was a wave of female lawmakers who were sent to Washington, D.C., including in the Senate. She had led the Judiciary Committee. Uh, there had been some calls uh, for her to step down because of ill and infirm health. Uh, she missed uh, several months earlier this year uh, due to a bout with shingles, and she was hospitalized for quite some time. She came back. She was here and there over the past few months voting off and on, but Senator Feinstein unfortunately has passed away at the age of 90. Now, what does this do as we try to avert a government shutdown here? They have the votes in the Senate to pass an interim spend bill to keep uh, the government open. There are more than three quarters of uh, senators who can vote there. So that's not going to be an issue in terms of breaking a filibuster or keeping the government open. But uh, the governor of San Francisco, uh, Gavin Newsom, has indicated uh, that he would appoint a, a black woman uh, to the Senate. Now, this has raised some political hackles back in California because you have Barbara Lee, the Democratic representative from California, who's indicated that she thought that she should maybe be appointed to this. You have Adam Schiff, uh, the congressman, the former chair of the Intelligence Committee who is running, Katie Porter, the Democratic congresswoman from California. So it will be interesting to see who they appoint to the Senate and just how fast they do it. But as to the mechanics of dealing with a government shutdown, that's probably not going to affect that regardless of the timing. They're not going to necessarily need her vote because something is not on the edge based on that, that Senate vote there. But tragic news this morning, Senator Dianne Feinstein passing away at the age of 90 after you know more than 40, almost 50 years yeah. in public service. There are a number of things that come to mind immediately upon the passing of Dianne Feinstein. Uh, of course, the first thing that people are going to say about Feinstein is that she was a pioneer for women in politics. And as much as that is true, I think it's far more important what someone believes than what their gender is. 
And I think that one of the things that happens whenever something like this occurs, similar things happen when Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. We talk about how great it was that they were a woman and they were able to serve in this public space without really considering what did she believe, what did she bring to the table. And I have a clip that I'm going to play in just a minute about what is going to happen next with her successor and why we should be a little bit concerned or maybe a lot of bit concerned about that. But before I go there, allow me to share with you from Wikipedia some of what Dianne Feinstein actually believed and stood for while she was in the U.S. Senate, which first of all, she joined the U.S. Senate in the 1990s. So she was in the Senate for 30 plus years and most people want to resign far younger than 90 years old. This wasn't about having a zest for the job. As you heard, she didn't show up a whole lot in the last year or even more for the job. This was about holding on to power. And why would she want to do that? Well, here are some of her more important positions in the scope of things. On abortion, Feinstein supported abortion rights during her Senate career. In 2003, she voted against a proposal to ban a method of abortion referred to as partial birth abortion. And after the Supreme Court ruled against abortion rights in 2022, Feinstein called for congressional action to protect abortion rights and stated her support for lifting the Senate filibuster rule to allow such legislation to pass with a simple majority. So you have here one of the most pro-abortion senators that we have had in the Senate. And whenever Right to Life of Michigan would talk about enemies in the Senate, they would bring up Dianne Feinstein. Whenever pro-life organizations talk about the battle nationally, they would bring up this name of Dianne Feinstein. And I want you to consider for a moment what it takes to oppose partial birth abortion. Partial birth abortion involves bringing a baby who is full term to a breech position so that you can then kill the baby by stabbing it in the head. That is partial birth abortion. So when we talk about things that Diane Feinstein approved of, be aware and be very sure that she was for the murder of unborn children. We're talking about children that if they were delivered normally would have been healthy and able to maintain a life outside of the womb. And Diane Feinstein voted for their wholesale murder. That's the first thing I want to point out to you. The second thing is that when Feinstein first ran for statewide office in 1990, she supported capital punishment. In 2004, she called for the death penalty in the case of San Francisco police officer Isaac Esperanza, who was killed while on duty. But by 2018, 
she opposed capital punishment. Now, I know that there are a variety of beliefs about whether capital punishment should be endorsed. And people have concerns that maybe innocent people would be killed. Um, and so, and some people say it's not pro-life to have a pro-capital punishment stance. But this is clearly a stance that Feinstein changed for the sake of political expediency. And the reality is that God said to Noah, before the law of Moses, if a man sheds a man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Genesis chapter 9. So, before the law of Moses was established, God put into place that murder was a capital offense. Now, we are supposed to, in our justice system, be able to prosecute people and find them guilty if we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are guilty. The Old Testament gives us the guideline that at the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every thought be established. So if we are going to endorse capital punishment, we do need to be more careful about how we mete out that punishment. I do agree with that. But I think it's important for the very sanctity of human life to fall on the side of supporting capital punishment as long as the guilt can be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. So this is the person that we are mourning this week as a country. And her death is sad, as is anyone's death. To my knowledge, she did not know the Lord Jesus Christ as her personal Savior. And if she did, she didn't live it out in her politics. But the reality is, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so, whether or not you know the Lord is the most important thing that you need to know before your life ends. And you don't know when that will be. It could be when you're 50. It could be when you're 90, like Miss Feinstein. But the reality is here that now the governor of California has an opportunity to replace her with a candidate of his choice. And we have now heard who that will be. Gavin Newsom out in California, uh, he was very close to Dianne Feinstein. In fact, she mentored him. Mm -hmm. They were both from San Francisco and he became, she was governor and then he became governor, as you know. He appointed someone to fill her seat and her name is LaFonza Butler. She was an advisor to Kamala Harris back in 2020 when Kamala was running for president. She's a big Democratic strategist. So the thing is, he said... I'm not going to put anybody up for this office as a temporary replacement as seat filler if Dianne Feinstein is unable to continue if they are a candidate. He said it would not be fair. So Katie Porter, uh, Barbara Lee and uh, Adam, Schiff. Adam Schiff are not eligible. So he went and tapped uh, this staffer with uh, this staffer with 
uh, the vice president, Kamala Harris. So she'll hope be a place sitter. But it's not clear if she still wants the job. So mm-hmm. she is not necessarily signing on to him. I promise not to run, mm-hmm. which was the criteria, Lawrence. Well, she she also runs Emily List. Uh, they're known for uh, supporting pro-choice candidates. She's not really a politician. She's one that gets them elected. She's a strategist. Um, It's going to be interesting to see how this works. Maybe she gets in the job, uh, Ainsley, and decides that she likes it. She likes the other side of politics. Mm -hmm. But traditionally, and and I've seen her work for a while, uh, she's been behind the scenes crafting messages for the Democrats. Well, apparently, according to uh, Politico this morning, there is no restriction. If she wants to run, she absolutely could. Uh, Apparently, it's not necessarily a short-term appointment. Uh, Gavin Newsom did not put any preconditions on her running for uh, Senate in 2024. He did go uh, last night uh, to X and posted this regarding the announcement. I am proud to announce California's new U.S. Senator, LaFonza Butler, as we mourn the enormous loss of Dianne Feinstein. The very freedoms she fought for, reproductive freedom, equal protection, and safety from gun violence, have never been under greater assault. LaFonza has spent her entire career fighting for women and girls and has been a fierce advocate for working people. She will make history becoming the first black lesbian to openly serve in the U.S. Senate from her time as president of Emily's List to leading the state's largest labor union. She has always stood up for what is right and what has led her heart and her values. There is just one problem, you know, uh, given the fact that she's been a political uh, strategist and uh, activist, essentially. She doesn't live in the district. She doesn't live in the state right now. But I just looked it up. You just have to live in the state at the time of the election. It's not an election. It's an appointment. So apparently uh, she's going to wind up registering to vote in California. Well, right now she's expected in Maryland. to be sworn into the Senate on Wednesday right. by Kamala Harris, right. her old friend. And according to the AP, it says uh, Butler currently lives in Maryland, according to her Emily's List biography. And Izzy Garden, a spokesperson for Newsom, said that Butler owns a home in California. And like you said, Steve, she's expected to re-register to vote in California before being so sworn. Be- okay, first of all, I'm going to do something that may surprise you. I am going to praise Gavin Newsom for making the declaration that he would not choose any of the three Democratic candidates that are currently vying in the primary to take this seat in 2024. I respect this because he is absolutely right when he says that it would give them an unfair advantage in the election. That being said, this new choice would have the opportunity apparently to run on her own if she appreciates the job for the one year that she has it. And I would imagine because of campaigning, she will probably have to make a decision like at least uh, six months in whether she wants to continue the job enough to run for re-election. So there's that. And... There are a variety of problems with this choice, but I want to focus first on the fact that she is from Maryland and she works in D.C. She has nothing directly to do with the state of California, and yet she has been chosen to represent this state. Now, we've seen this before. We saw Hillary Clinton move to New York 
to run for Senate, and she was successful. But I think we have missed the boat when it comes to understanding that our senators and representatives are intended to be public servants. We have missed it in the way that we have senators and representatives stay in office forever, and we have missed it in the way that we choose new people to represent people that they have not spent any time with. This is a problem. Not to mention all of the politically correct reasons why he chose her. Now, Gavin Newsom, a couple years ago, said that he would choose a black woman if and when Dianne Feinstein's time in the Senate was over. Okay, we are out of time, out of time, out of time. I have to go to a break, but I have to, this is a yes or no answer that you could give me. Uh, if, in fact, Dianne Feinstein uh, were to retire, uh, will you nominate an African-American woman um, to restore the seat that Kamala Harris is no longer in the United States Senate? And do you have a name in mind? I have multiple names yes in yes mind. Yes. We have multiple names in mind, and the answer is yes. Okay, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom, thank you very much for leaving. A few years later. California Governor Gavin Newsom has appointed a new senator to fill the seat of the late Dianne Feinstein. Alfonso Butler, she's the head of the group Emily's List, which works to elect Democratic women. She will be the third black woman to ever serve in the Senate, as well as the first openly LGBTQ person to represent California. Butler will serve until the winner of the state's next Senate election. That's November 2024. Feinstein died last week at the age of 90. Gavin Newsom had promised to fill Dianne Feinstein's seat with a black woman if she were to resign. Well, now that she's passed, he's made good on his promise and he has appointed LaFonza Butler. She's a badass. Check out this video. Since the dawn of patriarchy, women have had their power stolen. Time and again, we have been told what we can and cannot do, what choices we can and cannot make about our lives and our futures, but time and again, we have come together across race and across place to respond to questions about our rights with clarity and resolve. Our bodies belong to us. Our freedoms are not up for debate. That's my new senator. All right, guys, so we got to talk about Gavin Newsom, who is a radical governor from California. And his radicalism continues as he is now appointed what I think is undisputably an affirmative action uh, appointee to the Senate to replace Dianne Feinstein. Okay, it's bad enough that. Don Feinstein decided to die in office rather than step down and to live the rest of her life in a way that I think that senior citizens should, okay, not being in office, right? It's bad enough that she chose to selfishly hold office before passing away. But now, to make matters worse, the woke revolutionaries, the Democrat Party, the woke Democrat Party, Gavin Newsom has nominated an affirmative action lesbian black woman not from California to replace Diane Feinstein in the Senate. Take a look. 
in just over two days since the death of Dianne Feinstein. We now know who will fill her seat for the next 13 months. It's an old friend of the governor's, LaFonza Butler. She will go from being the president of something called Emily's List to being a senator from California. According to Politico, she is registered to vote in Maryland and based in D.C., her work involves fundraising for pro-choice female Democratic candidates. And she could be one herself since Newman did not put any, Newsom did not put any restrictions on her joining the crowded field running for the permanent Senate seat in California. Butler has a deep background working for unions and with the announcement, Newsom delivered on his promise to give the job to a black woman. Butler will now be the only black female in the Senate and the first openly gay one. Okay, let's get started here. First of all, this woman has no political office experience that I know of. Her claim to fame is being a Democratic strategist. She is the leader of Emily's List, which is one of the biggest clearinghouses to help elect and promote Democratic and particularly pro-choice women. That is her claim to fame. Secondly, she does not live in California, as was previously disclosed. Apparently, she simply needs to register to vote in California, and she has a place of residence in California. Now, I know from my time as the deputy treasurer of Winfield Township that if you have two properties... Only one of them can be your primary residence. And you can't simply claim your second one as your primary residence without actually living there. So it's a little bit disconcerting that basically all she has to do is change her voter registration to make this happen. Also, it is worth noting that she checks all the boxes that the Democratic woke agenda would have her do. She is a woman, she is a black woman, and she is a lesbian. This is Kamala Harris 2.0. She's not being lauded for her work ethic. She's not being lauded for the wonderful intelligence that she will bring to the Senate. She's being lauded because Gavin Newsom said that he would choose a black woman to fill this spot and... He has. And it's not lost on me that this person is a friend of Kamala Harris who consulted with her when she was running for president in 2020 before accepting the appointment as the vice presidential nominee, which she eventually won on the Biden ticket. We all know what Kamala Harris has done since she got to Washington, D.C., as the vice president, and it has not been much, and it has not been pretty. And now we are faced with another candidate, much like her, who is not being promoted because of the hard work she has done, but because of the color of her skin and her lifestyle choices. This is not a good thing for the people of California. Gavin Newsom should be ashamed and this is so pandering, it's not even funny. You know, the left likes to say that the right are panderers, but it doesn't get any more pandering than this. 
And I wish people would wake up and say, there's nothing to celebrate when you didn't get elected to this post. You are only getting chosen for this post because you check the boxes. Keep in mind that Kamala Harris, when she was chosen as the vice presidential candidate, had about 1% of the vote in the Democratic primary. She had no shot at becoming president. And yet she was the selection of the Biden administration because she checked the boxes. And that is the case for this senatorial appointment who will now be the senator in California for a year and have a leg up should she choose to run in the 2024 election. These are things to be very concerned about. We need good people to run for office because they have a passion for this country and not because they want to have a lifetime career in it. Gavin Newsom should never have been faced with this because Dianne Feinstein should not have been a senator at 90 years old. In any other occupation, that would be considered ridiculous. But somehow in the Senate, it's become the norm. As Nikki Haley said, the Senate is the biggest, wealthiest nursing home in our country right now because so many of our senators are extremely old and they're just hanging on because they want to continue to have the power and prestige that comes along with being in that astute body. But we need to pray for our country that we would get good people who would have sound morals and would stand for truth and then be willing to go back and be citizens in this great country. Because I think one of the problems that we run into is that the Congress often makes rules that don't apply to themselves. And then they stay in Congress their whole lives, so they never have to see how their legislations actually affect the people who they are legislating on behalf of. This is the reality in which we live. Well, I hope that you have benefited from what I have shared today. I have one final story to share with you, and that is an update on the Ramaki family who is seeking to stay here in America because they emigrated here several years ago because they wanted the rights to homeschool when Germany removed that right and possibility from them by their laws. In 2008, a family fled from Germany to Tennessee after they were fined for homeschooling their kids in Germany. Five years later, their asylum claim was denied, claiming they weren't persecuted. But they were told their stay was indefinite. Now, after 15 years of making the United States their beloved home, they are facing deportation. Uva and Hanalore Ramke join us along with Kevin Bowden, an attorney, with the U.S. Home School Legal Defense Association. Thank you all for being here. Uva, let me start with you. Um, you claimed asylum because homeschooling is illegal in Germany, correct? And you've been homeschooling here in the United States ever since. That's correct, yes. And we were actually granted asylum first by the immigration judge here in the United States. 
And you and, and Hannah Laura, you made home in in Tennessee. You've thrown roots down there. Um, and when did this notice come that your family is going to be deported? Um, this month on the 6th, we were there in Knoxville uh, at the office. And uh, yes, and then we got this notification, the order for removal. So, so Kevin, help me out here. Um, we're seeing record numbers of illegals race across our southern border, most of which are claiming, loosely claiming some sort of a need for asylum. Yet your clients clearly, because of their beliefs, want to homeschool in a country that allows it and Germany does not. How, how do, Square that circle for me. Well, thanks, B. Thanks for having me. What I can say is the Romica family has entered the country lawfully. They've been here lawfully for 15 years. Yes. They want to stay here lawfully, and there's a way to make that happen. So this is not a case other than a family following the rule of law, which is what we have in the United States, as you well know, and wanting to continue to follow, follow the rule of law to stay here. And so uh, the Biden administration can make that happen. Uh, the agencies can make it happen, and we're asking them to simply do just that. Uva, why you guys? Why were you chosen for deportation at this point? What are they telling you? Well, the thing is, they did not tell us anything. Uh, we don't really know why. We wonder that ourselves because we cannot understand. Uh, Hannah Lore, if you were returned to Germany and you wanted to continue to homeschool, what would happen? And the laws there hadn't changed, and um, so. We would face the same, the same persecution as we did back then. So, so homeschooling is totally illegal in Germany? You can't do it? Yes, it is illegal. It is illegal. So we have a situation with the Ramakis, and if you are a friend of mine on social media, you already saw that I shared a petition with you about it, where this family wants to be able to educate their children homeschooled because they think it's best for them. But in Germany, you are not allowed to homeschool. And so they came to America and they actually had a judge who sided with them and they've been living here for several years. And now they are being told that they are going to be deported back to Germany and thus not going to be able to continue to school their own children at home. And I said this on Facebook, and I'll say it again here, regardless of how you are educating your children, if you believe in freedom, you need to be praying for the Ramaki family, and I would encourage you to sign that petition. This is a freedom issue, and it is fundamental. And the gentleman doing this news story is exactly right when he points out the hypocrisy of the fact that we allow illegal immigrants to pour over our southern border and we give them everything they could possibly need in the name of being kind and generous and being a place of liberty, but then to turn around and deny these people who are trying to work through the legal process, the ability to stay in this country. Now, I have said on multiple occasions that I do believe that our immigration process needs work. And that is why our Houses of Congress, the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate, 
should come together and hammer out no-nonsense immigration legislation that eases some of the problems with the way things work currently. But you don't ease these problems by flexing your muscle when you feel like it and refusing to flex your muscle when you don't feel like it. You deal with these problems by honoring people who seek to do things the right way and by deporting those that don't. And if you want to seek to help them get the help they need to come here, then by all means do it. The reality is we have the legal means to come here to the U.S., so people should be encouraged to come here the legal way. The U.S. is a great place to live, and I think that if you really want to come here, you should be able to do so, and we should welcome you with open arms. But having restrictions is one way that we keep America free and we keep America a land of opportunity. I've said this before, and I'll say it again, that one of the greatest ironies I've ever heard is the fact that for two years plus, we've hammered on the American people that they should have every right to abort their children. We have had a 50-plus year lineage of thinking it is totally okay and acceptable to murder our children, to murder our progeny, and yet liberal politicians will turn around and say that we need to welcome our 11 million illegal immigrants into this country in order to fill the jobs. That, my friends, is unacceptable and ridiculous. But for the Ramakis who want to stay in this country and have fought to do so legally since they arrived, I hope that they are given the asylum they so richly deserve and desire. That's about all I have time to share today on the show. If you have any comments, questions, or other feedback that you'd like to share, or maybe have a news story that you think I should investigate for a future episode, please feel free to send me some feedback at the contact information that will play at the end of the show. For Culture Watch, this is Andrew Gomison saying, have a great week and keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at Speaking for Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review. 